direct from the web, it's Billy Masters Live. And now, please welcome your host, Billy Masters. Hey everyone, welcome to Billy Masters Live. I am, of course, your host, Billy Masters, and today is... Oh, thank you, Monica. Today is Tuesday, June 8th. Oh, and you know, I can't look at that and not realize and remember that... Um, Today would be the birthday of the late Joan Rivers, who, as you all know, was a close friend and a influence and gave me so many opportunities and uh, inspiration. Uh, it, it's uh, always hard when you think about something like that, and um, especially leaving in such an untimely way. You know, but I have thought many times during this pandemic that oh, if only Joan were alive during this pandemic, the tweets we would have had would have been unbelievable. Um, however, speaking of tweets, our guest today, we're back to Tuesday shows. So let me just, oh, first off, I'm in the Fort Lauderdale Beach House. Obviously, that's why we're not in the studio today, because, you know, I needed to get away. I'm exhausted. And I just go out and walk on the beach and I'm very happy. And, you know, there are cabana boys to be had. Um, but it was fortuitous that I was flying because I had a book by one of my favorite writers, Paul Rudnick, who you probably know from so many plays, Jeffrey, most fabulous story ever told, the movie, The Addams Family Values, The Stepford Wives, the original version of Sister Act. Oh, so many, some so many things. We have so much to talk about. Um, but he is also a prolific tweeter, which is where I was before I was going to the plane. So tweeting, plane. So I was go I was flying down here on Saturday, and I had his new book, his new book, Playing the Palace. I don't know if you can see it. We have a Chiron somewhere. Monica will put it up, I'm sure, when he's here. Anyway, Playing the Palace. So Playing the Palace is about... You know, I, you know, it, it's I, I hate to give anything away, but let's just say a gay man from New Jersey who lives in New York on the cusp of be turning 30. I'm lucky in love, although I really am not sure I'd say that because he just broke up with like a really hunky actor. So really, I don't know how unlucky he was. But anyway, they broke up and he's sort of down on himself. But, you know, if you can be down on yourself, you'll never be lonely. But anyway, he's down on himself, and he goes to St. Peter's. Or no, St. Patrick's. Paul, is it Patrick's? It's Patrick's. St. Patrick's in New York. And he prays for things to turn around and for love, and he then meets the crown prince of England, who's openly gay in this story. And romance and hysteria ensue. I'm not going to tell you too much more. Anyway, so I knew I'd enjoy this book. I sat down on the plane, which thankfully I had nobody next to me. So I didn't have to worry about, you know, sometimes you pretend you're reading a book just so you don't have to talk to people. I didn't have to pretend. I was relishing this book. And um, I had so much fun that I had no idea that we actually landed. And uh, I was only about halfway through. I'm a big skimmer. You know, there's a lot of times that I will see two paragraphs of like description. I'm like, yeah, I get the idea of this chintz pillows, you know, and then I move on. 
I read every word of this book, sometimes went back to read it again because I'd laugh or there would be a little detail. Anyway, I took my time with this book and enjoyed it so much. But I'm going to tell you one little story before I bring him on. One point in this book that comes up quite often is that if you are the crown prince of England, if you are in a rarefied position where everybody knows you, you can have whatever you want, how happy are you? And if you're with someone like that, are you going to be happy? And you know, I have known my share of famous people. One person internationally renowned, he's dead now, renowned person who Let's just say I had an association with, it's all coming up in my book, somebody known worldwide, books have been written about, I'm like this much in the book, but books have been written about. And I said to my sister at one point, like the hero of this book, I have a sister who's not as sassy as Abby, by the way. And I said to my sister when I first met this person and was around his orb of hangers-ons and people who would criticize me as they did. And, but I'd also look at it like, oh my God, I'm with blank. And I said to my sister, you know, sometimes I have trouble not thinking to myself that I am around history, that I'm with somebody that people will write books about that will be written about. And my sister told me, don't think about that because if you think about that, you will not be able to enjoy the experience. And it was really hard, but it was very good advice. And there were times where you said, oh, this is so not worth it. But now looking back, it was so worth it. And what's even more worth it is my guest today is the author of this book, somebody who I have revered as a playwright, as a screenwriter, as a novelist, as a bon vivant, and just as a human being, the great and prolific Paul Rudnick. Oh, hello, Billy. So good to see you. And thank you so much for having me on the show. And what I especially like is that the book yeah. is perfectly coordinated with your outfit. Oh my God, I didn't even think of that. You're right. Exactly. It's I've teamed my outfit with the book. Look yeah. at that. Now, you know, I will say, uh, Monica, can we put up the uh, image of the book so people can see it better? Okay. There you go. So, you know, now, first off, I wasn't quite sure because the person on the left, who's obviously the prince, is like David Bowie trying to look like Lucille Ball. <laughs> That's sort of what I see there. And the right, kind of looks like a young Liza Minnelli. Now, I yes, know that's I, not what you were going for, but I'm just telling you. No, I mean, I love the cover. It is impressionistic. It's a, it's it a notion. It's a wonderful fantasy, and it's very pastel, and yes. it's romantic, which is what I like about it. That it and, you know, it picks up the blue in your shirt and the pinks and oranges in mine. I know. I think this is just a, an interior oh, design so dream. Um. So, but the first question I have to ask you, because I know, I know you for so many years and I know your work for so many years. It's a basic question. I'm really curious. Do you consider yourself an optimist or a cynic? And actually, I don't know if I'd say cynic because I don't know if I'd say cynic, but anybody who writes with such a wry, sardonic flair has to have this dark side. Oh, absolutely. It's actually, it's a wonderful question because I would say I'm an optimist by choice because I think you can justify cynicism 
not just so easily, but so accurately. I mean, the mm. world is an overwhelmingly scary, often tragic, often traumatic place. So when I started writing, I always I thought to myself, okay, and this is only true for me, every writer makes their own decisions. What did I want to add to? What was I good at? Mm-hmm. And because I'm a comic writer, I thought, okay, I somehow naturally gravitate towards happiness and towards joy and towards trying to justify, especially a happy ending, which is one of the reasons I wrote Playing the Palace, was I thought, okay, we live in an age of divorce and grinder and tinder and, you know, complete jaded mistrust of anything romantic. So I thought, how could I go about helping the reader buy into a romance or at least mm-hmm. come along for the sort of swoon-worthy ride. So that's something I've always liked to do, even in Jeffrey, which was set at the peak of the AIDS crisis, which, you know, the, the stakes don't get any higher or more hideously sure. depressing than that. But I was surrounded by people who were so funny and so valiant. Mm-hmm. And one of the only ways they were getting through that particular horror was by using their sense of humor and their whatever joy they might find. So that's what I wanted to reflect in that play. And I thought, okay, how do you set a romance amid such, you know, awfulness? So, yeah, I, that's why I just, I've always moved towards, towards optimism, even when it seems completely insane. Are you like that in your real life? Are you somebody who can look at the worst thing and find something funny in it? Or <laughs> does it take you a while to get there, like real people? It can depend. I think if you ask the people around me, they might not, they'd have other opinions. But I come from this, you know, big Jewish family in New Jersey who always valued humor, who always felt that if you can Mm -hmm. make a joke, if you can find a punchline, you can kind of own the situation and it's not so dire. And it helps you kind of get over yourself. So I do believe in that. And yes, sometimes I'll be as morose and self-pitying and just awful to be around as anyone else. But yeah, I get tired of it. I always say, oh, enough already. Right. You know, and the fact that there is a box of chocolates sitting just a few inches from me right now <laughs> off camera. <laughs> Which could bring such happiness. Exactly. You think, okay, there's there's tragedy on every street corner. There are also ruffled potato chips. You know that it's... Um, <laughs> I, I try to find the something to at least cheer me up. If not, and I think it's important that it doesn't erase the darkness. Right. But it certainly, you think, I have to say, the other thing I always believe in is how many lives are you going to get? You know, mm. since, um, and without getting too sort of treacly and Pollyanna-ish about it, I thought every day you do get a certain amount of say in how things proceed. And you either say, okay, I am going to always move towards something more celebratory or I'm just going to wallow. And wallowing, you know, certainly has its place, like on my couch in front of the TV. But, um, but yeah, I just, I do tend to look for some form of glorious artificial light. It Does that come from your family and your upbringing? Because I, I know from reading about you and in your book, your families play a very important role. Were you able to look at them as crazy but lovable or were they at a certain point crazy and annoying? I would say they everyone like everyone's family they start out crazy and annoying and uh-huh. you know horrific and then you take a step back you also get a little older and you go oh, okay I'm pretty awful too. <laughs> you then, um, no there is a point where you actually when the first time you could see 
your family as separate from yourselves and mm -hmm. from yourself and not as people who are put in place to torment you. And you start to appreciate them and you start to see the sort of arc of their own lives. I do remember there was a point in my early 20s when my mother, for the very first time in her life, started to curse at me. I mean, a blue streak. She would just call me, you little whatever. And it was so joyous. It was the great leveler. It was because it was the moment when she decided she could no longer be a role model. I was a lost cause. Mm -hmm. There was, it was sort of an equalizer. And we had the best time when she could really let loose. So I tried to reach that point as well, where I could appreciate my family. You certainly forgive them. You also start to enjoy their idiosyncrasies rather than thinking of them as instruments of torture. <laughs> um, and also my family gave me so many. I mean, when I wrote um, my novel, I'll take it, my first book, oh, what a it great was a book. tribute to my mom and her sister. Her sister's so, and, shopping. Yeah. And every summer we would pile into the car and we pretend we were going on a trip to New England to see the Whaling Museum and all the historic, <laughs> you know, uh, monuments. And we were really hitting every discount outlet mall and shop from Piscataway, New Jersey to Waterville, Maine. And I love that lesson. I love that my family both lied about it and yet couldn't stop enjoying themselves. So I thought, yeah, there's a tradition I can live up to. So, yeah, that, I mean, it's part of both the Jewish community and the gay world that you think, these are both tribes that so value humor and show mm -hmm. business and education and culture and democracy, you know, all the good stuff that I am, I would, I felt lucky and honored to, to be, to be part of both of those worlds. So yeah, they inform everything I do. And you celebrate them, which is what I love is that, you know, you talk about that, you sort of have to, re-look at who they are as an adult and then reintegrate that into your life and your and your purview. And in your books, you really do celebrate them. You don't use them as, I mean, they're they're laughing points in the sense that they can be outrageous, but they're not outrageous to point at and laugh at, but outrageous in a lovable, you know, embracing kind of way. Oh, yeah. Well, pure villainy wears out its welcome very quickly. Unless yeah, that's you see true. any situation from each character's point of view, you're going to be very limited. You know, you need to sort of adore everyone you write about, no matter how monstrous they could sometimes be. Mm -hmm. um, well, and I remember it. I'll take it. I, um, I did. There is an element of larceny in the book. And when it came out, my mother told people, it's all true except for the crime. <laughs> <laughs> I thought, okay deal. Um, I also sat behind her at the first preview of Jeffrey, where she was terrified because a very raunchy play. And she thought that the audience, she was very supportive, but she thought the audience was going to sort of find me, drag me into the street and behead me. She was so nervous. And I, her shoulders were up near her ears. And as the play went on and the audience was laughing and embracing this, our amazing cast, I saw her shoulders lower and she was so happy and she felt, oh, okay, there was not going to be some horrible, you know, assassination attempt. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, they, I, I, that's how I sort of integrated all of my feelings. Because when I read some books and some people are totally justified in uh, not just a hatred, but a sheer sense of escape from truly toxic family situations, that wasn't mine. I mean, there were certainly darker elements. But there's a point where you think, okay, you're an adult now. Get over it. 
that's sort of horrible. That, that be no, but I, I have done that yeah. with like, family members as well. When they come to this realization of I'm this way because of this, 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 and I'm like, great, now you know that, now what? What are you going right. to do with that? How are you going, how is that going to inform your life moving forward? Because you can't do anything about what happened. Well, I do remember my brother, who's a terrific man. He once, when he went into therapy for the first time, and anyone who's done that is familiar with this, you suddenly, your world opens up in all sorts of loony ways. But he did blame my mom for introducing us to Hostess and Drake's desserts, which he felt, you know, were poison. <laughs> I would disagree with that. I would as considering well. Considering them to be religious items. Thank and you. I just screamed at him and I said, she, I do not remember a gun to your head saying, you know, have a bite of this brownie. Take a yodel. <laughs> you know, so I thought, okay. You know, there was there was so much good mixed in with all the all the dreck. So um yeah. But I think that there is a point where you just have to own things and get past them and where you start making your own choices. And you yeah. start, of course, finding your own family and you start figuring out a way forwards rather than dwelling on however unpleasant the reality might have been. Yeah, I have a friend who um, who lost both of her parents relatively young and had problems in her childhood that she never dealt with and has lived her life in like suspended animation for years. I'm like, you know, you're not gonna ever be able to move forward until you address what happened. And she has said, well, I'm afraid that if I start looking at what happened, it could suffocate me. I said, but you're not living until you've done that. So it is very hard, but you, you said something really interesting a second ago about the book and um, seeing the characters from different perspectives. and. I guess it is true in all your books, but uh, it, it certainly jumped out at me in this one, is that this book is solely from the point of view of Carter, the New Jersey, transplanted New Jersey boy. Um, so everything, you know, when I thought about this when it was over, everything that he knew about Edgar, the crown prince, is all that I know about Edgar. So I only know him through your hero's eyes, which is not necessarily well-rounded, but it makes me sympathetic from his point of view. But I'm curious, you know, you know, some people write books where like different chapters are from the point of view of different people. Um, would I have had a completely different impression of Edgar if this was from his point of view? Possibly, although I think some of it, there was something you were saying earlier about celebrity and power, that this is a book also with a, with a huge imbalance between Carter, who lives in an apartment in Hell's a fifth floor walk up in Hell's Kitchen with roommates, and Prince Edgar, the crown prince of England. And I thought telling it from Carter's point of view, which was my way into the material, felt mm -hmm. extremely valuable. That I thought, no, if you're entering a world of wealth and privilege and luxury, you want to see it with an outsider's eyes. Right. And you want to see how he works his way into a relationship with someone of such enormous influence in the world. That was the, something else I wanted to do was create a gay character who was genuinely powerful. I think sometimes we're so used to seeing uh, the gay people as, as underdogs or as constant figures of trauma. So mm -hmm. that and there's also, there's an old saying, 
uh, with the rich and famous, always a little patience. And yes. that's something that Carter learns when he's dealing with Edgar and his family as he's getting to know them, as the reader's getting to know them as well. That I did, I think if I thought about if I if I told it equally from, from Edgar's point of view, but I thought, no, I wanted to maintain a certain distance and mystery, which is part right. of the secret of the royal family. We don't know that much about them because they don't give that much access. They don't give many interviews. I mean, until Meghan and Harry talk to Oprah, the world had no idea. So, right. um, so I wanted to keep that intact, that sense of, oh my God, what am I getting myself into? So I think we start to learn enough about Edgar through Carter's eyes that he becomes quite rounded. And we start to realize also because Edgar has been trained and disciplined his entire life not to be forthcoming and not to share much of his whatever inner turmoil he, he has with the outside world because he's a royal and because there's that constant scrutiny, which is another important aspect of the book is what do you do when all of a sudden every move you make is in this global spotlight and this internet, under this internet microscope. So um, I, to get that sense, I needed it to be in Carter's voice. Right. But I think and that as Edgar trusts Carter more and more, he opens up and that's how we start to learn about Edgar's life. You know, you also, you, you made a really important point halfway through that, you know, two so-called civilians who aren't royal, who aren't famous, who are normal people, we have a very different idea of what celebrity means and the joys it brings. And what the Crown Prince points out is that very often you can be attacked the most from your own people. Mm -hmm. That being the first, particularly in this case, the first royal openly gay person, you would think, great, all the gays are behind you. We're celebrating him. And he's like, I'm not gay enough. I'm too gay. I'm a gay that likes to go do rugby matches, not necessarily a gay who's going to musical theater. And so um, we start to see that, you know, we, we, I think we've learned that average people cannot be painted with such broad strokes, but we still think that celebrities or royals can be. And this was really, I, I thought that when they had that scene where Carter has to understand Edgar's life is not this charmed life, that he is not, he's like, well, why don't you just do this? Why don't you just do that? Well, A, maybe I don't want to, and B, I'll be criticized for that too. Oh, yeah. No, I'm so glad you brought that up because, yeah, that, I mean, when you watched, actually, I thought how beautifully Megan and Harry carried themselves during the Oprah interview, but there was also always an element of caution because they knew that anything they said or did was going to be dissected and reviled and applauded also as well everywhere they went. And that's true with, with Edgar as well, especially when, as you were saying, when you were the first gay anything. I mean, I've been around mm -hmm. long enough to see how many fantastic gay actors have come out when there was always that studio objection that, oh, we would love to have more gay actors in our films, but there are no gay leading men or there's no right. gay performer who's economically viable. And I saw the apprehension of those performers before they came out where they were worried that, okay, am I going to be out there alone? Am I going to have to represent all gay people wherever I go? Am I going to have to be some ultimate role model 24-7? Which was often true. And the only answer to that is, of course, 
more of everything, more of everyone, more everyone, more people living openly. But the first has the biggest burden. Oh yeah, and I think whoever is the first to open the gate royal, and it's shocking that there hasn't been one yet, will be both, you know, wildly uh, celebrated mm-hmm. and attacked vicious. I mean, I adore gay people. They are my family, they are my tribe. But on the other hand, have you met some of them? <laughs> you know, yeah, they're well, how many times about their opinions? Yeah, we cringe about people because, and it's not because they're gay or they're straight. Or oh, why are they doing that? But the person next to you is like, oh, I'm so glad they did that. And we have to understand that everybody is coming at it with their own baggage, their own preconceived notions, and it is um, and you cannot win. You know, Meghan Markle has been the most polarizing member of the royal family. And after the interview, just as many people who adored her hated her. Yep. People who thought she was so sincere, others thought a lying bitch. And you're not going to change those people's minds. And um, uh, it's been interesting to see it play out in the papers. And reading this book, I thought to myself, how fortuitous this timing. You couldn't have planned it better. I know I can, my dream is for someone to somehow a paparazzi shot of Meghan and Harry with a copy of playing the palace sticking out of Sitting on the beach reading, yes. <laughs> you know, or Queen Elizabeth, you know, keeping it at her bedside. In her purse. So I'm, in I'm, purse. You know, fingers crossed. But it's, yeah, no, I mean, it's what we all tend to envy the, the power and the money of, of, of the celebrated and to imagine that fame is this miracle antidepressant, which at times it can certainly be. I mean, you, sure. and on the other hand, I'm not going to pity people in life where lives of so much, where so much is given. But on the other hand, it's funny. I just was thinking years ago for absolutely no good reason, I was on Oprah's show when she still had her show. And it was the first time I'd been around Oprah or anyone at that level of fame mm-hmm. and, and authority. And she was fantastic. But I remember when I was sitting you know, uh, in the, in the, uh, on the soundstage and she entered and the crowd went so berserk and they weren't being prompted. You know, they were, there were the no air changes. On. Yeah. And I watched her deal with that, with that level of adoration, which of course could so easily turn on her. And she was so smart and so sane. And I thought she's one of the few people at that level of celebrity who hasn't had huge public emotional breakdowns or, or spent, you know, months in rehab. She's someone who's figured out a way to um, maintain her sanity. And that was so impressive because I thought, okay, that's in its own odd, ultra-privileged way, not easy. And it was, you know, I was sitting there just thinking, oh my God, it was like watching the Mona Lisa being brought into your apartment. <laughs> you know, you just thought, that's really Oprah. I could touch her, you know, and she. So at the same time, was she accessible to you? Did you feel like you were talking to a real person? Because I've met Oprah as well. And I find that she looks you in the eye, which very few people do. Oh, incredibly. And that was something when I was writing Prince Edgar that I wanted to reflect because there were certain celebrities. Oprah was one. I watched Patrick Stewart when we were making the movie of Jeffrey and he was someone Everywhere we went, we were shooting it on the streets of New York. Crowds would gather, clamoring for him. He was so popular. And he dealt with people and with his fans with such graciousness and humanity. And that is a choice that that celebrities make. And with Oprah, it was very true as well. They know it is their job Mm -hmm. to put the rest of us at ease. 
which it's strange because you think, oh, we imagine everything is, is easy for them. But no, they always know we are gaping at them. We are drooling. We are creating secret fantasies. And they say, look, I am a human being. We are going to shake hands and we're going to talk. We are, you know, you, you actually can't treat me as if I am a, an object. Um, and I was, right. when, when we were shooting in and out and Tom Selleck had that effect on crowds as well. And at one point, he, my mom was visiting the set and he kissed her. And I wow. thought, you are the most wonderful man. She must have swooned. Oh, beyond, beyond. You know, that was the rest of her life was sort of post-Tom Selleck kiss. <laughs> so it was, um, so yeah, there are people who who do celebrity well, you know, who been, and maybe it takes a few years of, of practice, but it was always a lesson. I thought, okay, that's the right, that's the right way. You know, you, you keep mentioning your mother and I know that she was a big influence on you and that she was the person, I, I believe she was the person who introduced you to the theater. Oh, absolutely. No, she made, cause she and my father are from um, uh, New York, from Queens and mm -hmm. always had a habit of theater going. And I grew up with all of their original cast albums and they made sure I was taken into Manhattan for matinees. I had the weirdest superpower as a child. They'd let me choose a musical a Broadway musical for every birthday. And I would unerringly pick the worst show of all time, <laughs> which is one of the gifts of being a child is you have no taste and you don't care. As long as there was an orchestra and a red velvet curtain and people singing and dancing, I was in heaven. So yeah, that was, was critical. And I- um, What was the worst show? Oh, I don't dare. I mean, the worst shows, the really epic, the memorable hits I reserved for later in my life when I saw Into the Light, the musical about the Shroud of Turin. Dance of the that? Oh, my God. It started, remember Dean Jones, the original star? I company. remember Dean Jones. He, yes. was, he was very valiant. It was, the show was bankrolled by some strange religious organization. Well, of course it was. Yeah. But it was really, <laughs> the plot was really about determining whether the Shroud of Turin was real or not. And that certainly sings and dances. Wow. And all, Only and in the Disney movie. <laughs> well, and Dean Jones, I think, played a scientist, and there was a lot of it in the lab. And I, all I remember about it was the big final moment. They did a laser show shooting from the shroud, which was on a some sort of gurney. As, and, and by that point, it had been discredited. So it was weirdly as if the Shroud of Turin was somehow Anastasia. You know, that she was as if, okay, she's not the princess, but perhaps she really is. So the shroud suddenly erupted or an alien. with the worst disco lighting you've ever seen. Oh my God, and I must look this odd. up. And actually it was trying to create a genuinely religious ex religious ecstasy in a Broadway house. So that, that was pretty great. Um, Dance of the Vampires was a whole other- Oh, I remember know. that. Yep. So yeah, that- I somehow the ones that really have stayed with me are, are the more adult disasters. And interestingly enough, speaking of Dance of the Vampires, you are working on a musical. Yep, I am co-writing a book <laughs> with, with Kate Weatherhead, who's a terrific writer of the musical of The Devil Wears Prada, which yep. and now Elton John is doing the score, wonderful yes, lyrics, with Shana Taub is doing the lyrics, and it's going to try out next summer, actually, in Chicago. So right. it's been delayed because of the pandemic. Because of the um, pandemic and also because just getting all the pieces in place. I mean, musicals are the most time consuming journey. And especially when it's uh, a version of such a beloved novel and then film, I think everyone involved really wants to get it right. Well, of so, course. So we'll see.
This is uh, is this your first musical? Writing it's my musical? first Broadway musical, and I've always had musical elements since Sister Act Act, even in sure. my plays. I've always aimed at seeing if you can achieve the the level of heightened emotion and sort of celebration that arrive with most musicals in straight plays and in novels. So it's mm -hmm. something very dear to my heart. But yeah, this is the first all out Broadway show. You know, it makes me think to myself because you're so varied in so many ways that the only person in contemporary time I can compare you to is maybe Terrence McNally. Oh, well, he was both a friend and a true hero of mine. Oh, I mean, I, yeah. I remember when I first got to New York, I was friends with Wendy Wasserstein, the wonderful playwright yeah. who who was died far too young. And she and yeah. Terrence were very close. And Terrence. And they were, to have the example of the two of them who were both so brilliantly talented and making a living as playwrights. They were working in the theater, you know, in other realms as well. But they were, and they had a real glamor to them and a joy. They were really funny. They could be really dirty. They were just, they were about, they had a sort of Nick and Nora Charles rhythm to them. But, right. um, but I adore Terrence's place. So getting to know him and, and to, um, you know, put a, a personality to the work was, was a great sort of Manhattan pleasure. Um, but yeah, he and Wendy were, there was something just sort of golden about them. Do you, when you think of what you do, because, you know, saying writer almost seems like trite because, you know, like people who are on Facebook think they're writers. So like, I don't like that. Um, but you're a playwright, you're a screenwriter, you're a novelist, you are an essayist. We should mention that your essays in the New Yorker now, is that where yep. you are mostly? Um, but of course I remember from Premier Magazine, Libby, how could I forget Libby? Uh, in the book, the collection of her essays, Libby Gelman Waxner, what is the name of the book? Uh, uh, if you ask me. Yes, it's such a great book. If you can find oh, it, you can exactly. find it. No, it's out of print, but it is. You can pay a lot of money for that thing on eBay. It's um, a and great book. tweets as well. I'm Paul Reddick. Yeah. Oh, your tweets are great. And, you and, do and like these lists. in the New Yorker as well, so that she is still strangely alive and as powerful as ever. Well, so do you think of yourself just, I, I don't want to say just as a writer, but how do you define your occupation? That's tricky because, yeah, it took me a long, I mean, I thought it wasn't until Jeffrey when I felt I wrote something that didn't embarrass me horribly. <laughs> 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 it was when I realized that the highest form of happiness is relief. It was when I, I wrote Jeffrey, which was about a community I adored, and it was something that felt very necessary well, it was time. at a time that was yeah. so vital. We were scared. It was AIDS. It, it was running rampant really still at that point. Oh, completely. And, and you either, like you said earlier, you I, plays and books and films either delved into the abyss and sat there or they ignored it completely. And it was the first time that I believe a play gave us permission to laugh. Oh, I, I think so, because that it was a weirdly, aside from being a, a hideously tragic time, it was also had a strange excitement to it because theater had become essential because the, the media was completely ignoring the epidemic and the, the, the government was beyond ignoring it. But I remember that when I went to see The Normal Heart, 
which mm. was, wasn't just a great play, which it was, but it was essential. I remember they were scrawling the um, numbers of the dead and the infected on the walls right. of the set and they would update it constantly. And so there was an electricity in that theater because people were getting basic information from a play and that almost never happens. In so, real time. In real time, exactly. So there was a climate of, um, of, a, of almost a town hall quality to, to shows at that point. And I remember when, when Jeffrey opened at this time, you know, it was turned down by every theater in New York and, and across the country, they were all terrified of it. And, um, but when it opened at this, the WPA, WPA? was wonderful, but very um, small, off-off-Broadway house, often audience members were seeing it for the second and third time and would practically recite favorite lines with the actors. So I thought, okay, something else is going on here. They were seeing their lives reflected, which included a huge amount of humor. So it was, I felt, okay, I had something to contribute here and that I was as, as much as I could getting it right. I was, the, that this was a very critical audience and they were saying, yep, that's what we're all going through. Um, so that was the first moment when I thought, okay, I can do this. I could start to do this. And, and did you feel that you could then say, I am a playwright? Yep. Yeah, that was, and it was kind of, I mean, I've written other plays before then. Yes. Um, but they were sort of, it was part of a learning curve where I thought, okay, when I would write these plays and they would be received one way or another, but there would often be a sense of a slap in the face of, okay, you, you have to work so much harder. You have to get so much better. And it was almost as if I was also learning to be worthy of the material in Jeffrey and, and, and later plays as well, where I thought, no, if you're going to write about the gay world around you, you better be up to that task. Mm. So I, I needed to just be better as a writer. I still do. But it's... Um, there yeah, were also the other time. Paul Rudnicks out there judging you, so it better be up to your own standards. Oh, exactly. And so um, so since then, you know, there have been ups and downs, but I've tried to, and it's never, I think I, like almost every other writer I know, you always do your best, whether that's reflected in the success of the project is, is another matter entirely. But um, But yeah, that was the first time I thought, okay, if I call myself a writer or put it on my tax return, I will not cringe quite as badly as I have. Um, but yeah, it's, it's funny because sometimes saying you're a writer feels like you're saying something so archaic, like I'm a shepherd, I'm a poet. You know, it just feels like you should be holding a tambourine and wearing a velvet hat. Um, but on the other hand, it's, you know, the greatest source of joy for me, aside from my partner, John, um, and chocolate. It's, yes. um, I couldn't imagine doing anything else that I feel lucky and even devious that I get to do what I love and occasionally make a living at it. That it's, it's just the joy of my, it's a gift. And I think so many writers feel that way because you, you, so much of your time is spent alone or in endless frustration. So you better love the writing itself. Yeah, I think it's interesting because there is a lot of pressure on writers because what they write about are snapshots of their era. And, you know, if you ask an average person, what do they know about Henry V or Richard II, they may know a play. That's all they may know about yep. it. And so while I am a big believer that plays and fiction 
can go wherever they want, there is that fear that people take it as fact and historical, historically accurate. Your plays do have snapshots of the era in which they were created. And I'm thinking now of The Naked Eye, which I saw at the ART in Cambridge. Oh, my God. I I did, with, the, with the unbelievably fabulous Mary Beth Peel, where I fell in love with her there. She was unbelievable. But oh, yeah, I didn't the see camera. the first... I didn't see the first version of that. So I, which I guess was a year earlier. Yep. So I'm curious in that case, that's the one play I'm aware of of yours that did get sort of a second chance. What was the difference between that first and second incarnation? Oh, it was wildly rewritten. It was first time at the WPA with Mary Beth Peel and the, the heavenly Jason Cameron. Oh, and it yes. was one of the most raucous experiences. The audiences would go insane for it, but the play clearly needed work. And oh, and we I should say, tell people that it's kind of a, inspired by Robert Maplethorpe. Yep, it was. And the I funding by the government. By, by Maplethorpe's like courage and style, and also right. the fact that people would go into art galleries and sort of inspect these enormous photographs of erect penises and <laughs> appreciate them as if they were, you know, a vase of flowers. And then he went on and did photograph vases of flowers. Yes. But um, but I thought there was something also inherently comic about how he played on uh, the viewer's sexual nervousness and excitement and used elements of porn to, um, you know, make his way into the arts. So, and I remember when we did the play at the ART, it had a very different opening scene, which, and where the actor involved got my favorite re review of all time. He's a superb actor named Neil Maffin, very good looking. And oh, uh, the play opened with Neil hanging naked on a cross. Yes. And he had like a 12 minute monologue, and he, which he delivered superbly, even though I told him, Neil, you know, you're going to have to accept something. For at least the first five minutes of this, nobody's hearing a we're word. We're not hearing saying. a word. No, we were just appreciating. He was gorgeous. He was, oh, stunning. And one of the critics said, claimed that the actor involved was clearly wearing a prosthesis. <laughs> he wasn't. <laughs> I, thought, I said, Neil, that's the greatest compliment a man can get. Yeah. Um, but they didn't realize, nope, that's all you. And that's, you know, so he was just wonderful. He also... He and Mary Beth worked together so beautifully. So I would love that I was given that opportunity to get that play right because it was tricky. Also, because, yeah, when you're dealing with material that's very much of its moment. Um, ripped from the headlines. Ripped from the headlines. You Sometimes it'll, you need a couple of productions or a lot of drafts to, to find your way in. That it was um, material that I loved, which was why. I, and I was working again with Chris Ashley, who's the most superb director who's directed... Yeah almost all of my plays that, um, and, and the film with Jeffrey as well, that, um, so we just love that constant collaboration, that sense of, okay, what does this need? We've been lucky enough to see it on its feet once, and we knew it didn't quite land the way we wanted it to. Uh, how, do we, how do we get there? And were uh, you in agreement where it should go? Oh yeah, no, well, Chris is the best because he's, um, what I've learned about directors and about anyone in power, he is in, I mean, he's got a perfectly strong ego, but he doesn't need to push that around. He listens. Mm -hmm. He's incredibly appreciative. He's incredibly caring. So when I would have conversations with him 
he allowed me to fail utterly when I could say, okay, here are five god-awful ideas. And he'd say, yes, those were god-awful, but the sixth idea seems to have some promise. So he was a, a, just a dream director for me and, and continues to be. We have another play scheduled for next year. Um, but yeah, no, it's, I mean, I always think that a great director is a combination of your perfect parent and therapist and parole officer. There's somebody who <laughs> understands you, doesn't let you get away with anything, but does it with kindness. Yeah, but I, I have found that, you know, I know quite a number of playwrights and people who work with the same people over and over. Um, and I'm thinking of Charles Bush, um, and Matthew Lombardo, and people who the director almost is like a dramaturge that allows you permission to bring out things that you may not have tried with other people. Oh, absolutely. Because if you're a writer like me, you can also sometimes be in the most annoying way, hypersensitive, where you know you, <laughs> you, you don't want input from 80 different people telling you what your play needs, even if they're right. So if you can have someone who can listen to those 80 people on your behalf and then channel the useful information, that's a dream come true. And that's what Chris does and other directors. I've, I've worked with in movies like Barry Sonnenfeld on the, on the Addams Family movies was like that and Frank Oz on in and out But they're people who are the best possible barrier and interpreter and guide, you know, that right. they also protect you from all the voices of people who don't really have a stake in what you're doing, but are perfectly happy to offer an invaluable moment's opinion. Although one of the one of the most important lessons I've ever learned, and it's really hard, but you sometimes the stupidest people can have a good idea. So it's important to listen to, to almost everyone. It, but that's why it's good to have a director to verify, okay, that jerk in the corner just said something that we can actually use. You know, so well, it's it, funny you you've told this story, but I'm gonna, you know, I try to avoid you telling anybody telling stories that I've heard on other interviews, but it's just such a brilliant story. Could you tell the story about the comment cards were the for in and out? Oh yeah, no, it's funny. I was just thinking that the other day because um, we had the first test screening of in and out at a mall in New Jersey. Of course, you it, did. Of course, and at the Paramus Mall, um, and it was. Um, the audience is chosen demographically. So you have a mix of genders and ages and races and professions, and they're, they don't know what they're seeing. So in and out was just mm. sprung on them. So we got to see, okay, how is this genuinely, go, genuinely going to play with an audience that has not been prepared in any way? And for and people were, who don't know, we should remind them that is the movie where Tom Selleck comes out. What is his profession in that? No, actually, Kevin Klein. Kevin oh, Klein is a school teacher in Indiana. Okay, right. Outed on the Academy Awards by Matt Dillon. You know, very, oh, right, right. In, he was in a very well-meaning way. Right. Yes, he he salutes his his high school drama teacher, and that's Kevin. And then there's an uproar in this town because. What have he outs him the week he's getting married to the divine Joan Cusack. Oh, and then Tom Selleck comes to town and Tom is an openly gay reporter. Right. And he and Kevin start to mix it up. And right. they okay. very, they've got a very long and deeply romantic kiss, which mm -hmm. caused that those test audiences to go in berserk, both for, for good and not so good. That there a lot of the women in the audience would be just swooning and loving the romance of it. And there was a teenage boy in front of me 
who stuck drinking straws in his ears to somehow prevent him from watching more of the kids. But anyway, the story you mean is afterwards, all the people in attendance are asked to fill out cards, you know, rating the movie and discussing their response. And there was one lady who had said, what were your favorite scenes? She listed like 12 different scenes. Who were your favorite performers? Everybody. Did you enjoy the film? I loved it. I was laughing. I was sobbing. Couldn't get enough. Then the final question was, would you recommend this movie to a friend? And she wrote, absolutely not. And it said, if not, why not? And she wrote, against God's law. (laughs) I remember reading it and thinking it was hilarious and God all. And also that was something I couldn't quite fight. I thought, you know, I really can't tell you, you know, I actually spoke to God myself earlier today (laughs) and he loved it. Um, But isn't it interesting somebody who was that religious and believed that was also able to accept it as funny. Oh, so yeah, no, I mean, that's- it, it gives me faith for people because I am all, I have friends who get very angry with me. I believe that people should believe whatever they want. I don't feel I have to convert them. But the fact that she was open enough with those feelings to also not only enjoy it, but admit it, maybe not to her friends, but to you. How oh, yeah, there, there is a great American hypocrisy that is can be hilarious and terrifying. But it's if you ever need to know why your Aunt Sadie, who you adore, who volunteers, who's a nurse, also can support Trump, there it is. You know, that you see what you want to see and it can drive the rest of us insane. But it's it's something you have to deal with. You have to say, okay the world is complicated and there is very little that is good or evil, except for Trump, who's all evil. But um, (laughs) it's, you know, yes, that woman, I thought, I love you as being such a fan of this film. On the other hand, I don't know how much therapy you need, but it was, it was a lesson. Yeah. It gives me hope actually for people because I really believe that people have these two sides to them, if they're open and not threatened. And that's what I love about your writing is that, you know, there are some people who may say that, you know, oh, it's a gay play, but it re- they're not. You know, I had this conversation with uh, Nia Vardalis and we talked about when she had written My Big Fat Greek Wedding is a stage show. And she learned something along the way that I think all of us who write learn, which is that, the more specific you get, the more universal something is. That I'm not Jewish, my family are Albanian immigrants, but I can read your book and I know these people because everybody has these people, whoever they are. Italian friends of mine know these people, Puerto Rican friends. So it's not Jewish, it's people. Oh yeah, no, that's what I wrote out. Okay. I had so many Catholics telling me that's my family. And, and with playing the palace, I find royalty obsession is insanely common. And because Absolutely. the royals are so distant from us, we all project our fantasy lives on them, which is why royal romance is has been a constant theme sort of throughout literature. I mean, it's why Cinderella is such an enduring literary and cinematic trope. It's something we all are, it's a dream we all can share, even when and we know And why the Hallmark has a network. Exactly. And why shouldn't gay people be, you know, right in there with everybody else? 
You know, somebody just sent in a comment. Uh, hi, Paul. I wanted to say that I recently rewatched re Jeffrey. It's on Prime now and fell in love with it all over again. Oh, Can't wait to you. check out Playing the Palace. Rocky, thank you for that. Thank um, you so much. How much of Jeffrey changed? It's been so long since I've seen the film from stage to film. And were you all together happy with the, with the transfer? It was one of the first times. It was so interesting because I was so smug. I thought, oh, this material has been <laughs> road tested. You know, it had been performed actually all over the world. I knew where the laughs were. I knew how this thing worked. Movies are a completely different animal. And that's how I found out through trial and error. There was one laugh that Chris, the director, and I both cherished. And we thought, oh, okay, this is just going to kill. We were so sure of ourselves. Same actor, same moment, landed with just the most resounding thud. And we cut it from the movie. So that's how you what learned was it. it. What was it? It was, um, oh God, it's a moment <laughs> that is politically questionable now, but there were, but very common in, in Manhattan society. There was a big gala fundraiser where the wait staff had to dress as Native Americans and cowboys. You know, yes. there are always these theme events. Wasn't and it a roundup? It was a roundup. It was a hoedown <laughs> for AIDS. And there was a moment when the superb actor Patrick Kerr, who was a very disgruntled, um, Native American waiter, cater waiter, um, said his boss was haranguing him and saying, you know, okay, I, I want you over at table 12. And he just turned to his boss and said, I want my land. <laughs> and, um, and you just didn't see it coming into the theater. It detonated. It really played, I will say. Um, and we filmed it at, a, in a, at, at that hoedown stage at the ballroom at the Waldorf with Patrick Kerr, and it just didn't work, and he was heavenly. So it was that, but there were other interesting things that we gained, where there would be, you know, in, in, when you film, sometimes a glance can do what a page of dialogue does on stage. So there were moments that were on the fly that ended up being what I think of as bonus laughs, you know, wonderful discoveries, and where we had all, you know, these amazing actors like Olympia Dukakis and Sigourney Weaver and Kathy Najimy, um, and who were finding such, you know, new uh, facets of the material. So it, but that was the first time I'd ever adapted anything of mine from one medium to the other. So that was fascinating and it was quite a process and it was, um, I had to kind of wrap my head around it. So it was, um, but I was so grateful because also it was done, you know, on the fly, no permits, all of, we had a, a sort of all-star cast, none of whom were making a dime. We had the the glorious Brian Beck got to repeat his role as Darius, so it was so um, it was the best luck. So yeah, so ultimately I I was delighted. Did anything you found making the film version make its way back into the play? Huh, that's interesting. I remember, I mean that we may revive the play, but so we'll see then. But I do remember there was <laughs> this is so awful. This tells you all the the worst about me that there was originally a joke about. Um, Jackie Kennedy, Jackie Onassis in the play where um, people, there's a, a fake game show sequence where the character mm -hmm. calls it's just sex. And at one point the, the host asks the, the uh, contestants, what's your, your dream date or something? Who's your, who would you love to go out with? And Sterling, the, um, uh, the interior designer who was played mm -hmm. so wonderfully by Edward Hibbert on stage and Patrick Stewart in the film says, Jackie Onassis. And um, 
people. And the host says, Jackie Onassis, why? And he says, to see the apartment. <laughs> um, so, and when Jackie Onassis died, she was, you know, an American legend. And I, I felt awful and she died far too young. But the horrible comic idiot part of my brain thought, okay, now you've just ruined my punchline. <laughs> how dare you? You know, that's how, that's how comic writers grieve. So, oh, um, so I changed the line to be Yoko Ono because she certainly owns half of the Dakota. So it played just yes. as well. And that's who it became. In but the when film. she dies, then what? I will kill her again. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, so that's awful. But, um, but yeah, so who knows? There, there could be some cross-pollination there. We'll see the next time uh, I get to see Jeffrey on stage. You know, I had told, uh, when, when we set up this interview, I had told Lauren that um, I, when I went to acting school at the American Academy of Dramatic Arts, I used the opening monologue of Jeffrey as my audition. On one hand, I'd like to say that's why I got in, but I think they let everyone in that year. I didn't, no. go. I didn't go that year. And when I went back, I uh, to audition, I guess it was two years later, I used the monologue for my Hate Hamlet, which is the reflection on the opening night, the kid in the yep. front row, and I got it. Um, and again, what I like is that your speeches, they don't read like speeches. They don't even sound like speeches. They sound like dialogue. They sound like conversation. And what I love when I was reading, again, let's point it out, my matching playing the palace, available at all fine bookstores or Amazon or yep. Bond Noble, um, is that, you know, you talked about how in a film, you can say a lot with a glance than with three pages. And that you're equally adept at being very economical with what you write, as well as writing expansively. And I told you this before we uh, went on the air, is that a lot of times I'll say, mm, yeah, okay, whatever, I got it. But there are such gems and nuggets in your description that are also like an interior monologue at times. And um, is that something that you think about when you're writing a novel or conversely, when you're writing a script, do you think to yourself, I can't put all this in, I have to edit this? Well, it's something that whenever I have an idea or the germ of an idea or a thought of for a character, I try to let them dictate the form to decide, mm -hmm. okay, does this want to be a novel? Does this want to be a screenplay? And Playing the Palace only came together once I thought of Carter's voice and realized, okay, that was the route towards, towards this story. Um, and so how yeah, did and you I get to that point of what the voice was? Yeah, because and it is something that I think my theater background has helped me with, that sense of a conversational tone. And I think what you were just referring to that where you want the, I think sometimes books are wonderful when they feel like gossip, when it feels like mm -hmm. you're sitting down with a friend who's confiding in you and telling you all the dirty secrets about what really happened last night. Sure. And that's the, that's the feeling I wanted for, for playing the palace, that sense of, okay, here's somebody in this extraordinary situation who has access to all of these sort of gilded, um, powerful figures and who's going to let you in on the other side, you know, who's, who's been there. 
Um, and Carter was someone who, who I just knew. I mean, I've known so many people and so many gay guys in New York who put together a life from cater waitering and acting and graphic design and Uber driving and you name it. And I admire them so much that they, there's a life thereafter and they carve it out for themselves and they figure themselves out kind of on the fly. And they're often the sort of shadow army that keeps New York operating. You know, when you see your weight person, when you see the guy who delivers your flowers, when you- um, Or when you see that person outside of where you've typically seen them and realize they're a real person. Exactly. Which is such a New York experience. Oh, completely. Also, that's what the other thing that I loved about uh, uh, playing the palace was that it's a collision between Carter and Prince Edgar that could only happen in New York. Right. You actually have access to people who you could not possibly meet in any other moment of your life. But these guys come into contact at the United Nations where Carter's working an event. He's an associate event architect, which means he's a party planner. And suddenly Edgar is speaking on behalf of his charity. So there they are. And I thought that actually could happen in Manhattan. And they're also on, you've put them on equal footing, which I like because yep. Carter is running the event. All right, so Edgar could run England at some point. But the point is that one needs the other. Oh, yeah. And so there is not this subject hierarchy, which I really enjoyed as well, that from their first moment, Carter tells Edgar how to loosen up to make a speech. And in a normal place, a commoner might not say, you know, your highness, this is what you should try to do. So he's also got balls. Oh, yeah. Well, it's also, it's kind of a democracy versus a monarchy thing. Yeah, where We're Americans. So we think, no, but who's, we're all equal. No one's better than any one of us. And New um, Yorkers are very rarely flapped. Exactly. Unflappable. Because, well, I think New Yorkers tend to either think that we are all famous or we are all going to deflate anyone's attitude, you know, so that when we meet a royal, it's like, yeah, what else you got? I hope you're a good tipper. You know that it's um, so that there is that sense of Carter is both paralyzed with, you know, celebrity terror, that there's that sense of, oh, my God, I'm now five inches away from the cover of People magazine. Plus, he's really hot. Plus, he seems to be flirting with me. And on the other hand, he wants to say, you know, you're just a regular person like me. We, I and I work for a living, so I'm, you know, have one up on you. So yeah, I love that sense of strange uh, celebrity equality that that Carter's determined to to keep in play. Yeah, and you extend that to Carter's family when the crown prince goes to um, the wedding. And then nobody's expecting him. And all of a sudden, they don't even know that their, their brother, son, whomever, even knows a crown prince. All of a sudden, they just show up. And people are gawking, but there were people who are like, hi, Edgar, can I call you Eddie? You know, and I loved that because, and I will say Aunt Miriam, of course, is a favorite. And I did write down my favorite line. And of course, I've got her already cast. Um, uh, Renee Taylor is playing her in the film, in case you're wondering. And um, and she says, Edgar, may I sit down? Oh, look, I'm already sitting. 
Thank you. Thank you for liking that. Yeah, no, that's what that was one of the real germs of the whole book was, okay, what if you could take the crown prince of England to your sister's wedding, a Jewish at your temple in Piscataway, New Jersey? I thought, okay, that's a culture clash I would look forward to. And my well, because one of my favorite moments is Miriam does something that the women in my family are more than capable of, which is she wraps a dinner roll in a napkin and puts it in Queen Catherine's purse, as she says, for later, for the plane, a nosh. Um, so I love that sense of, yep, that they are going to insist on equality and insist on their own, keeping their own personalities sort of gloriously intact, even when they're at Buckingham Palace. Yeah, there is not a fish out of water feeling with anyone overtly, except for, as luck would have it, Carter, mm-hmm. who who does... But, you know, what I learned in reading the book is that Carter felt like that with normal people. He always was down on himself. So it didn't matter if he was around a prince or a hot movie star or, you know, on a dance floor in a New York gay bar. He was going to think, and there's this internal tape in his head that I think so much of us, so many of us have had, which is, this is great, but not will I fuck this up how will I fuck this up and when? And how badly will it be fucked up? Because the fuck up is coming. And that's his struggle in this book, I think, is to really sit back and enjoy life and enjoy it in the moment. Oh, yeah. And to entertain the possibility of happiness, which is something that is very scary. When, especially if Carter's been dumped more than once. You know, he's realized he's, he's got his family sort of glare on him at all times. But he's had he's, hot boyfriends. He has had hot boyfriends who have cheated on him relentlessly. Well, but oh, he had them. But he had them. <laughs> but, but yeah, so the, the book, the whole story in a way is an ultimate test where you think, okay, what if I fucked up on a global stage? You know, what if I made a hopeless disaster of my life and literally- The, the world entire- is watching. But the internet was raiding every heartbeat of that, you know, fiasco. So it's, um, yeah, I like I like to amp up the stakes that way to say, okay, you're not just going to have a bad relationship. You're going to have a bad relationship with the future king of England and everyone gets a vote. So it was, um, yeah, which because that's the other thing I thought, the idea of the romantic lives of royals is so fraught because- with the rest of us, everyone doesn't get to, you know, fill out a comment card on our right. partner, on our fiance, on our bride or groom. That, um, but Meghan Markle and and Harry, you know, are constantly being judged as to their sexiness, their appropriateness for each other, their physical presentation. You know, and you think that is an enormous amount to deal with that the rest of us have at a much more minimal level. Yeah, but we all have it with Facebook yeah. and internet is that we judge everybody. And unlike Meghan and Harry, who did sat down with Oprah in a pre-taped interview, Carter gets to go on live television, not once, oh no, twice. There, There's really almost a third time by absentia, but certainly those two times are disastrous. And it's funny because I thought to myself, oh, Paul Rudnick, couldn't you have given the poor boy one win? But I don't know if I would have, you know, you Where's root the fun in that? Yeah. 
You root for some for somebody who makes a fool of themselves because you're like, it's not how you fall, it is how you get up. Oh, yeah. And, and I think and when he has to win over not just Edgar's family, but his entire nation. When England, nobody's more judgmental than England. And so Carter, I think it's almost through his sort of foibles and through his uh missteps that people that the English people come to appreciate him and say, okay, mm. we've seen this guy fall down a substantial flight of steps. Let's watch him get back up. I think that's how you win people over, not by coming in in all your flawless perfection and all your photoshopped, you know, gloss. It's okay, how do you handle the the pie in the face? Um and that's how Carter proves himself. And I think that's how he feels that the ultimate but you know, a romantic fulfillment in the book is earned because he's been through mm. this sort of fire, this gauntlet of social, you know, mishaps. Well, you throw a little curveball at us. I'm not giving away any plot points, but you do throw a curveball by not telling us that this sort of denouement moment, you know, wasn't sort of wrong place, wrong time, but perhaps a little bit of self-sabotage and that people do put themselves in situations because they don't feel they deserve the happiness that's coming their way, or they're waiting for the next second shoe to drop. So why not help the shoe? Oh yeah, I think that's very common. That's something practically all of us share. There's also a great tradition in, in, in Jewish culture of the evil eye in which yeah, there's yes. always, you know, a dark cloud lurking beneath every silver lining. That sense of, oh my God, if I aim for, uh, for, for pure happiness, if I aim for romantic success, oh my God, is God gonna slap me down? Right. Um, and he may very that may very well happen, but that doesn't mean you don't try. And that's, I think, something that Carter figures out. But yeah, I think we are all capable of total self-doubt and total um, self-sabotage, that sense of, okay, you know, let's, uh, I'll dig my own grave, <laughs> you know, and dance on it. But Carter yeah, and I wondered by, again, talk about raising the stakes. When the Queen of England says to you that this relationship could, could be great, it could be bad, or it could be the destruction of the entire monarchy. Good luck. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, you know, talk about stakes. That's, I mean, now Meghan Markle doesn't have that because she could dance naked on a bar. It's not bringing down the monarchy because we've already forgotten about her in terms of the immediate family. This is somebody in playing the palace that is the crown prince of England. This is like if Kate Middleton were dancing naked on a bar. That's big. Well, that's why what, one of the things I loved is that Carter had intended to meet Queen Catherine, Edgar's grandmother, under ideal circumstances, with perfect yeah, lighting, yeah. being as articulate as possible, being ideally dressed. And instead, on his first night in the palace, he's wandering around the kitchen at 2 a.m., stealing a snack, and suddenly there she is. And crackers are spewing out of his mouth, <laughs> and she is so not happy to see him. And one of the things I love about Catherine is that she enjoys her effect on others, that there oh, are, yeah. you know, that she's somebody who likes being the Queen of England. Also, because oh, yeah. I, one thing that always fascinated me, there are certain jobs that have absolute security, the Pope, a Supreme Court Justice, and the Queen of England. Right. So there Where are ways to get rid of them, but basically you're never going to be fired. 
And you can either choose to be intimidated by that or in Queen Catherine's uh, case, you can glory in it. So she knows that she's got this guy as a frightened mouse in the corner with a flashlight in his face. So she has a great time. You also find out that her real concerns are overwhelmingly for her grandson's happiness, that she knows he's had not a life without obstacles and that she wants to make sure that he makes the right romantic choice, that he doesn't blunder. So that you realize, okay, this is a very powerful woman, also a deeply emotional one. So she's, she was fun to write. Yeah, I love that her big question is about the welfare of her grandson. Mm-hmm. That is her only question, really. Yep. And, um, and the directness of it inspires a direct answer, which is another thing that I like about this because there are people in books, in everybody's books, that approach a question differently. They sort of surreptitiously get an answer. This is somebody who's like, so, do you feel this way? What are your intentions? Oh, which yeah. is what makes her the parallel bookend for Miriam. Oh, yeah. Well, with that also- long speech at the wedding, which is brilliant. Oh, yeah. Well, no, that's Edgar goes through his own sort of gauntlet at the wedding, oh. especially with Miriam, who's not going to let him get away with anything. And who for who who is completely unimpressed with um, with his his crown and his accent. You know, she thinks of those maybe as drawbacks that she says we're going to overlook that. And of course, the fact that he's a Gentile, she says, well, just pretend it's like you have something in your teeth. So it's these guys both face challenges, and that's part of the fun of of romantic comedy is seeing okay, how many obstacles can you hurl in the past in the path of a happy ending? You know, what are these guys up against? And when it's royals, those you know, the, that's that's substantial. So um, so I love seeing how Carter and Edgar both maneuver their way through these very matriarchal people. Exactly. And you know, and that one. those matriarchs found their own commonality in the last few pages. It's real. I don't want to ruin it, but it's yeah. really quite yeah. extraordinary. All right. So I've got, because we've got to wrap up shortly. But the first question is, was there, was the blue streak in his hair an homage to social disease? Oh, my God. I never thought of that. That's so, I'm so glad that, that you mentioned that because it could be, it's sort of like a, some sort of weird brain residue where you link things but until this very second. I had, cause social disease was a good many years ago. Oh, but yeah. there you have it. Yeah. I, I and a, it happens at sort of the same time. Well, no, it's at the beginning of social disease. It's like so. I'm writing my own doctoral thesis on myself. I'm drawing, oh my God. You know, <laughs> I'm drawing parallels, but so no, I, I am, I'm thrilled to realize that today. So there All you right. go. Well, two two lines in social disease that I loved first. Licky viewed men less as lovers than as. I don't remember. I haven't read it in so long. Rides. Oh my god. <laughs> um, but then I will say, and now let's see if you can come up with the following to this line at the exhibit. Husband, wife says, well, I don't know. Husband says to wife, "Did you know that Ramses the second was entombed with his entire household?" I don't remember what. Tell me. Yes, Tia, there was a time when service meant something in this country. <laughs> that's true. Oh, see, that's one of so the funny. one of the oh. strange joys of being a writer is, and, and being older is that you get to sort of rediscover things, and they become, and they can feel. To- you think, 
who was I when I wrote that? And luckily, you know, I like those lines, so I'm pleased. But it's, it's, um, it's so interesting when you read it's It's going through your our creative photo album and you're realizing. Or reading ah, a line from your diary or something, right? Um, you don't need furniture if you use enough blush. It's just remember, that's a words to live by. That's um, I know, exactly. Okay, Coastal Elites. Brilliant. I loved it. And oh. I did. And people, if you haven't seen it, HBO, Coastal Elite, was supposed to be a series of monologues on stage at the public theater, correct? Yes. it was. They were written in helpless eruption before the last election when, like everyone I knew, I was living in a 24-hour news cycle of total anxiety and panic and dread, and I had to write about it. And in fact, I did once see a guy at a Manhattan coffee shop wearing a MAGA hat, and it triggered me like no one. Really? I thought, what are you doing on my turf? So that way I thought I have to put this on, on the page. So is this like a fantasy of what you would have liked to have been big yep. enough to do? Yeah, or what my mom might have done. Um, really? But yeah, and so I wrote these interlocking monologues and they were going to be staged at the public theater by the wonderful director, Jay Roach, who would then film them for HBO. And that was exactly when the lockdown happened. So I thought, oh, okay, this is this is just- Had it been cast at that point? We started to, but nothing near what we ended up with, which was this extraordinary group of Bette Midler and Dan Levy and Issa Rae and Caitlin Deaver and Sarah Paulson. Yeah. So we got, it weirdly ended up finding just the right home because HBO came back to us and said, is there a way to shoot this remotely? And we figured out with every health protocol in place, with very minimal crews, with the actors doing you know their own hair and makeup, figuring out locations in their own homes for the most part, and that very few cuts, I might very add. Few cuts. No, no, no. That was what was then. That's such a tribute to those performers. Amazing. We were, Jay and I were on like five apps at once. He was in LA. I was in New York. We were talking to each other on the phone while Zoom was doing stuff. We would Zoom during the rehearsals. There's something else called Q-Take that is closer to film. And that's what we ended up using for the final product. But no, there were moments, especially when Bette Midler did what was essentially a 35-minute monologue. Yeah. And that's hugely dramatic and wildly comic and passionate. And she would deliver it practically on one breath, note perfect. And Jay and I would be texting each other, you know, like teenage girls going, OMG, oh, wah. And then Bette would finish and she'd look at us and say, yeah, was that okay? No. We, we would go... <laughs> Ed, you have no idea that was phenomenal. And that happened with all those actors. And they were so undaunted by the intensity of these speeches. Also, because I think they were, they felt a lot of their own thoughts reflected in them. So mm -hmm. I, and also the, I, the other thing that was very fortunate was I got to rewrite in the moment, right up until filming. So we could reflect you know, the way he the healthcare system was being overwhelmed, the Black Lives mm. Matters protest, and included as it was happening, because I so wanted it to be a snapshot of exactly that time, right before the election, when especially in New York and in LA, you know, that's why it's called coastal elites, there was a certain kind of person who was, who hadn't slept in months, you know, right. who, who just was, um, and who also weirdly, I would go, I'd get on the phone with friends and we'd say, um, we're not going to talk about Trump or politics. It's forbidden. And then two seconds later. Yeah, I was going to say how that worked. You know, every word from 
from the last speech. And so it, um, yeah. And what, what was, what I think was lucky was that by filming with these very intimate close-ups, you were so right in there with those performers and those characters and that, and they were always intended to be monologues. So mm. that felt right for this material rather than like a drawback. So, um, so I was so, I was thrilled that it was able to happen at all. And at that level, and then I found so many people afterwards told me, oh, my God, that's exactly what I've been going through. So there again was that sense of, you know, national angst fueled into this um, this piece. And, uh, yeah, it was it was a very wild ride. You know, what's interesting about Dan Levy's monologue, he's an actor who is up to play the role of a gay superhero. And mm-hmm. it's like he wants to play it like, a normal guy who just happens to be gay. And he sort of asked, play it gayer, play it over the top. And he's wants this role because, you know, you want the role, but you also have this self-awareness and this conscious in your place in the world. But if you don't get the role, you don't have a place in the world because who's going to know who the hell you are. And he's wrestling with himself about being too gay, not gay enough. And again, Similar to playing the palace, you cannot, and saying how these directors and the feedback he's getting are coming from many gay men. And he's feeling, you know, I'm doing almost a minstrelized version of being gay, but that's what they want because that's what's going to sell to middle America, blah, blah, blah. And then when he thinks he has screwed it up because I'm not playing it that way, he still gets called back. And, you know, the idea of people finding their place in the world that is authentic and yet still has a voice. And I think that's the balance because you can be authentic and you're so authentic, nobody's going to listen to you. Oh, yeah. And Dan, I think he was so invaluable because he'd been on those auditions and he'd been in that situation where especially if you're one of the few, you know, economically uh, viable gay actors, you get called in for for certain roles and you know what's expected of you. And it's not always what you'd like to offer. Um, So he knew that that sort of battle. Um, And it was. Yeah, it's interesting that it's still going on because I've seen it with with so many actor friends who are you know, happy to be able to afford their health insurance, but, you know, at what emotional cost. Um, And the notion of gay super is the first gay anything. And what will that mean to the culture? What does that mean to a little kid growing up who sees, you know, Prince Edgar who might become King Edgar? Um, Or there's, I know there's a gay superhero in The Eternals of a film. Right, and I think Green Lantern and things like that, right. And then versus somebody like Bette Midler's character, Miriam, who again, another Miriam, who is resolutely herself. Yep. But also older and really in her bones and has paid her dues and has a body count to prove it. Oh, yeah. She's somebody who's so over it, who really has no filter left. And especially because of the way that Trump culture has pushed her to the breaking point. And when she is such a diehard New Yorker and such a longtime liberal and a school teacher, and she sees this guy with a MAGA hat on her turf, that is so much the last straw. And she so reflects a lot of the women I grew up around who were so hardworking and so dedicated and so loving, but also sort of you know, very no bullshit. And that, um, 
So she, and then I took advantage of the fact that Beth has such instantaneous rapport with the audience. You know, mm-hmm. she speaks for us and we can't get enough of her. And she, there's an honesty to her and a joy, which was so important to this character that she'd be somebody who also would be hugely funny and would enjoy being funny. But that there's an anger there that she had, especially if you've seen Beth on Twitter, you know she's got access to, you know, that yeah. it was that sense of national rage that that tapped into that was essential. And I just, you know, was in awe. Was the first time you wrote for Bette, and I don't know if people don't know this, Sister Act was originally conceived for Bette Midler. Yep. And was that the first time you wrote for her? I think it was, yeah, because that, and that was a long process. I worked on, on Sister Act for years, and Bette was very nervous because she had had a strange qualm about playing a nun, and God bless her, she's later said, I'm not sure what I was going through. I should have done it, but Whoopi did a fantastic job too. So yeah, that was it. I, you know, I, I'd grown up watching Bette Miller on, on TV and uh, worshiping her like so many others. And so it was a joy and a frustration. But later, I also did a big overhaul on the First Wives Club. So mm-hmm. it was a treat to write for Bette then and um, on other projects as well. So she's, she's just always been uh, such a, a, an idol of mine and a, um, you're just somebody who I, I, I treasure the, the, the opportunity to write for her. You know, when you work in film, um, things don't, things are so much done by committee as opposed to a playwright where you have a little bit more control, although there's still committees there too, but it's nothing like film. And I look at things like a sister act that starts as a genesis of a great idea that becomes another great idea. And then look at something like Stepford Wives that tinkered and tinkered to the point where you're like, I don't even know where we are anymore. And, um, is it a frustrating thing for somebody like you who works in more of a controlled medium on a regular basis? Yes, it can be deeply <laughs> frustrating and it's um, and maddening. It can also be highly paid because what well, most writers realize is that it is the, the screenwriting that will pay for the theater work and, for, and sometimes for the novels. It's also- And for actors. And for actors Same as thing. well, for everyone involved. But it's also- why sometimes people become novelists as well. Because one of the things I'm so grateful for with uh, with playing The Palace and my other books is I get to be the screenwriter, director, star, production designer. Actor. I get to pull all the shots because I treasure my my collaborations, especially when it's with someone like a Chris Ashley or a Frank Oz with, or you get to work with actors like Kevin Klein. That's a dream. You know, that's something you pray for. But on the other hand, when you write a novel, you have the joys of solitude and of making the decisions all on your own. And you can imagine that. And take all the blame. And take, believe me. Yep. I mean. And you also, you don't have the, the, the pleasure you get in the theater of audience response, letting you know if something is funny and when a cast. And rewriting. Yeah. And rewriting. That. Well, yeah. I do that in every form. I mean, that's, that's, that's an absolute. Are you a big move. rewriter? Oh, enormous. I, which I really. Love. And I better because no, I don't. Um, I mean, I'm sure there are writers whose first drafts are perfect, polished gems. I am not among those writers. <laughs> so no, I love being able to go back as many times as it takes and tinker and rewrite and throw things out until the material is the very best I can make it. There is no greater satisfaction than throwing out an entire manuscript because it's not good enough. 
Really? You know? And so yeah. when once you, so then is there anxiety when you say these are the final corrections of the galleys for playing the palace? And then you look and go, oh, fuck, page 82. What was I thinking? I mean, or do you not go back and look at it again once it's out? No, well, there is, there's a moment of exhaustion where you say, okay, this is the best I can do. If I keep going, I'll actually damage the, damage really? the story. So yeah, there is a moment where you say, okay, gra- drag this from my cold dead hands. It's, um, <laughs> you know, it, where it's done. And you have to be very aware of that sort of particular endpoint. But um, <clears throat> yeah, I tend not to rewrite things just because one of the things, I'm not rewrite things, revisit things. One of the things I love about being a writer is the constant sense of a fresh challenge of, okay, mm-hmm. not just that the next time I can do better, but I can do differently, something different, whether it's a different form, whether it's a wildly different story, whether it's a whole fresh batch of characters. I like that, the fear <laughs> involved and the um, anticipation of a new story which is something you might not get so much if you're going to a job where it's it's the same drill every day. Sure. Um, but yeah, so I I also, I'm scared of revisit, of rewatching a movie or going to see a play again or re- reading a book because I'll think, oh my God, that's just dreadful. But, uh, but sometimes I'm pleasantly surprised. Yeah, well, again, we mentioned The Naked Eye and I'm like, that that was at least the time that I'm aware of that you really sort of revamped something. Have you ever been in a situation where you've plucked a character, uh, revisited a character in something else or brought them into, what would these people do in this situation? Once in a while, there's sometimes you, you wish you could have sort of, you know, a trunk where you keep jokes that you know could work or characters that you adore and you think, can I plug them in somewhere else? Could they travel? Once in a while, that's possible. Usually not so. Usually, no, nope, start fresh. But um, but yeah, I find there are ideas that float around often for years, playing the palace among them, where I try them in other forms or in other stories, and they're not quite right, but all of a sudden they are. All of a sudden they made a home for themselves. So I try to stay open to that kind of, you know, voice of the universe. Yeah, I what I love about playing the palace is that again, it seems so timely. And to find out that you've been working on it for a while and at a time when you had other things going on, and yet it feels so fresh and so of this era. Um, I'm I'm curious how I'm how perhaps in five years would I look back at it and feel the same way. I told you I recently reread social disease, and I'm like, oh telexes and faxes and ATMs and, you know, and, and people trying to find a cab and pay, you know, things that are a snapshot of that era, but aren't necessarily of today. Oh yeah. No, that I never worry about things feeling dated. Cause I, I, it, you know, when people have sometimes asked, is Jeffrey dated? I think God willing, I don't want the world to be living mm. at the peak of the AIDS crisis, even though the disease is still very much with us. But um, no, I think accuracy is important. And I think when you read whether it's Mark Twain or Shakespeare or whomever, they are writing details that make sense for their time. And that's actually invaluable, both as pure history and as just a glimpse of people who aren't us, people who have maybe share a lot of emotional points of contact, 
but who still had very different lives and faced different challenges and didn't have the internet. You know, so I like that sense of, of reflecting progress of saying, okay, this is what it was and here's what it is right now. And I love that you also mentioned in the afterward that you were um, going through this, prepping it for publication during the pandemic. Oh, yeah, and no, it that's... sounds like you were having just as much fun prepping it as I had reading it. Oh, well, that was this year because it began with Coastal Elites when I was writing and, and we were filming that. And that was peak stress level. That was insanity. And I was so grateful for the escape of playing the palace when I was going over the galleys. And this was you know, romantic bliss. So there was a sense of, yes, this is the world I need right now. I need that escape. And I hoped I was, you know, uh, providing that for the reader as well, that sense of, okay, here is a world without the agony of the Trump years. You know, this is... Um, this <laughs> yes, is I should point out, I don't believe the name Trump appears in this book at all. Never. And that was part of one of my goals. I thought, nope, this is a different <laughs> world. This is, this is someplace that's far happier. Um, so yeah, so it was a very, it was quite, quite the year for everyone, but that's, that's where I went. Well, I think we should mention that, um, Michael Yuri does the audio book. Is it out yet? Oh, it is. It is. And he okay. is, of course, bliss. Anyone who knows. Oh, and he's going to do all the voices. Yeah, please. of course. Does he do and the Michael, accent? Yeah. And Michael is a extraordinary, also Juilliard trained actor, which yes. is why I knew he was ideal for this because people know him from Ugly Betty and Byron and Seller, and he can do anything so i oh, was so and classics lucky. yeah um you know i know everybody has asked you if you would write an adaptation for film if it could be a play would there be a sequel i have a completely different question could there be a prequel ah an origin story for either of them i would be very interested in that well, that I, that is that's very intriguing. I would, I'm open to anything at this point because I, I I fell in love with that particular group of characters, and I would be happy to explore either their their earlier days or what happens next, since the guys have only just begun their kind of major romantic um, adventure by the end of the book. So you never know. I mean, and whether it, it will find a, a light, another life in another medium, that's that's also open to question. So I'm thrilled with the book and I'm thrilled to have it published, especially at the level that, that Berkeley's done it. So oh, yeah. um, beyond that, it's it would be You're open. delicious gravy. Have you done a sequel to one of your books or plays? Not I considering did. I got Adam's, Adam's family. family values. Because I did yeah, a big rewrite on the first Adam's Family movie which was lucky because I got to know the, those, you know, sublime Charles Adams characters. And because the first film did well in the sequel, we were allowed to take things much farther and they gave us real permission. And I love writing the Adams movies because they were big, high budget studio films that were not expected to be wholesome. So that was a particular, <laughs> you know, gift. So it was, um, so yeah, that was a great experience. Well, I think there's always a bit of subversion in your work and I and, and a bit of perversion as well. As your mother would say, it's a little too perverse, but then the shoulders go down and we enjoy it. And I think we all need a little bit of perversion, subversion and escape in our lives right now. There's a great book. Bring it to the beach with you. Read it on a plane. It's great on a plane. And people will look and they'll say, oh, that cover, what are they reading? So, um. 
There it is, playing the palace. Yeah. Paul Rudnick, I adore you. Uh, this is the longest I've, I think I've only talked to you like a couple times at events. So to sit down and really pick your brain, I have so many other questions to ask. We'll save it for next time, for the next project. Agreed. But um, thank you so much for doing the show. And thank you again for the book, Playing the Palace, available at Amazon or a bookstore. You know, go to a mom and pop bookstore in your neighborhood I and mean, tell yeah. them to order it. Yeah. If they don't have it. I agree. Thank you so much for inviting me on. This was just a pure delight. Paul, thank you so much. Have a great day. You Bye, too. Bye-bye. All right, everybody. Thank you for watching Billy Masters Live. Thursday, another writer, Dan Matthews. Do I have his book here? Like crazy. Uh, Life with my mother and her invisible friends. She was schizophrenic and he took her in. It's a great story. And we have some risky pictures of him. Paul, I don't have any like near nude pictures of you, but feel free to send them if you'd like. Oh, if you're still backstage, because I see you there, I'll talk to you when this is over. Guys, I will see you Thursday, three o'clock. I know we ran long. I had so many questions. Um, this was Billy Masters Live. And just remember, if we're here, well, if we're here, I have to find my exit music. If we're here, we're live. Have a great day. Bye, guys.